Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. I'm Anthony Brooks, in for Meghna Chakrabarty, and this is On Point. Matthew Desmond is holding up a mirror to the American people. He writes, This is who we are, the richest country on earth with more poverty than any other advanced democracy. Desmond's new book is called Poverty by America. And it's not aimed at those living in poverty, but the, at the rest of us, the many Americans who benefit from perpetuating poverty. That's right, Desmond argues there's so much poverty in America, not despite our great wealth, but because of it. His book is an anti-poverty manifesto that asks those of us who are lucky, the secure, the insured, the housed, the college-educated, the protected, to understand how we are complicit in all this needless suffering and what we can do to end it. Matthew Desmond is a professor of sociology at Princeton University and author of four books, including the Pulitzer Prize-winning Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City. His new book is entitled Poverty by America, and he joins us now from Princeton, New Jersey. Matthew Desmond, welcome back to On Point. It's a great pleasure to have you, and thank you for this important book. Thank you, Anthony, for having me. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. The big question that haunted you, that inspired you to write this book, is why there is so much poverty in this rich, rich nation. But I want to start with some definitions. How big is this problem? Help help us sort of put it into context. How big is the poverty problem in America? Embarrassingly, shamefully big. Just using the official poverty measure, about one in nine people that live in America are below the poverty line. That's 38 million of us. So if everyone who is below the poverty line in America formed their own country, that country would be bigger than Australia. Mm. But there's plenty of economic hardship above the poverty line too. One in three people in America live in a household bringing in $55,000 or less. Many aren't officially quote unquote poor, but what do you call it? You know, raising two kids in Boston on $55,000. So there's an extreme spread of economic hardship uh, all across this country. And I want to talk about a definition and ask you the most useful definition of poverty. You mentioned the poverty poverty line, um, and I'm looking in your book, uh, around $27,000 at the beginning of 2022 would be considered poor. Um Is there a more useful way to define poverty? Yes. Well, I mean, it depends. You know, poverty measurement is really contested and scholars don't agree on what measure is the best. But in 2011, uh, there was a group of academics that put forth a different kind of poverty line. It was called the supplemental poverty measure. And what it did is it counted certain kinds of aid, like housing assistance and food stamps, that the official poverty measure doesn't. And it also paid attention to living expenses and healthcare expenses. And when that line was introduced, uh, the United States officially gained 3 million more poor people, actually, because gains in poverty that we saw when we counted government spending were more than offset by rising costs of living. Mm. Another way to measure hardship is just to simply measure hardship and kind of look at what's happening to things that we know affect very low-income families. 
So if you look at evictions, they're up 22% since 2000. The number of families who visited food pantries is up almost 19% since that time. The number of homeless kids in our public schools are up 74% since the Great Recession. The number of families receiving food stamps but reporting no cash income has almost quadrupled since the 1990s. So just measuring these kind of grim indicators of poverty paints a very troubling picture of the state of America today. Right. And and I want to spend some time with you talking about what poverty looks like and, and how we understand it and how it's manifested in all kinds of ways. But first, I want to jump right to sort of one of the core themes of this book. And you write, Tens of millions of Americans do not end up poor by mistake of history or personal conduct. Poverty persists because some wish and will it to. So you argue that there's not so much poverty in America, uh, that it's not in spite of our wealth, but because of our wealth. Can you explain that? I read this line by the novelist Tommy Orange, where he writes, um, kids are jumping out of the windows of burning buildings, falling to their deaths. And we think that the problem is that they're jumping. And when I read that line, I was like, man, that sounds like the American poverty debate. For years and years, when we've talked about poverty, we've focused on the poor themselves. But we should have been focusing on the fire. You know, who lit it? Who's warming their hands by it? And so let's let's make that kind of abstract idea really concrete. How do many of us and by us, I mean not just the very, very richest Americans, but many of us who enjoy a level of economic security in America. How do we contribute to poverty? Well, we contribute to exploitation in the labor markets and in the housing markets. We like cheap goods and services that the working poor produce. We like when our savings go up, our investments go up, even when those gains require a, a kind of human sacrifice in the price of Poor, poorly paid workers. We protect certain tax breaks, like the mortgage interest deduction or tax breaks for wealth transfers or even college savings. And that starves anti-poverty investments. And if you look at the data, maybe we'll get into this a little later, you see that the country does a lot more to protect fortunes than it does to fight poverty. And then we often... Uh, just one more thing. Yeah, so I'm go sorry. Ahead, I, don't, no, I, no. I, don't to, I don't mean to give you a video. No, no, no. This is why but, you're here. Go ahead. And, uh, and we also continue to be segregationists, many of us, especially those of us who live in majority white affluent communities. We build walls around our schools and our neighborhoods, and we hoard opportunities behind those walls. And these are three ways that many of us are implicated in all this deprivation in this country. You give some examples of um, sort of who benefits the most from what you call the welfare state. And when, and when we think of the welfare state, usually we're thinking about programs that help the poor um, who, who, who need welfare. But you point out that in 2020, the federal government spent more than $193 billion on subsidies for homeowners. Um, most families who enjoy this benefit have six-figure incomes and are white. So that's $193 billion, but they spent, but the government spent just $53 billion on direct housing assistance for low-income families. Um, so that's an example of, of, what you're, of what you write a lot about in this book. And can you flesh that out a little bit? Because that just seems so crazy that the government is spending right. so much money on upper-middle-class folks, mostly white homeowners, 
uh, and relatively little on people who really need the help. Right. And look, you know, a lot of us, we might not think of that tax break as something that's akin to a government subsidy, but both a tax break and um, a check for the government cost the government money. Uh, they both put uh, money in our pockets, you know, and they are should be looked at as as equivalent kinds of things. And if you add up all the things that the government does for its people, tax breaks, uh, social insurance programs, means-tested programs, these programs like food stamps or housing assistance that go to the poorest families in America, you learn that every year the average family in the bottom 20% of the income distribution takes home about $25,000 in government subsidies. But the average family in the top 20% of the income distribution takes home around $36,000. You know, that's a 40% difference almost. So it is an example of how the government is doing the most to help people that have plenty already. Mm. And yet, you know, I want to be clear because one of the things that really surprised me in your book, you write that despite America's high poverty rate, we actually spend quite a bit on anti-poverty programs. How do we compare to other countries in this regard? So those are two questions. And so one is, has anti-poverty spending gone up or down this, or stayed the same in the last 40 years? And the answer is it's gone up. So, so some programs like housing have been cut dramatically, but other programs, especially healthcare and certain wage subsidies, uh, per capita spending's gone up. So if you look at government spending per person between the time that Reagan uh, took the presidency and the first year of Trump's administration, uh, anti-government spending, or excuse me, government spending on anti-poverty has gone up uh, over 200% mm. uh, adjusting for inflation. So, you know, in some in some cases, we are uh, deepening our investment. But you asked another question, it's shall we compare to our peer nations? And on that measure, we're still lagging far, far behind. You know, as a share of our GDP, we invest far less in stabilizing people's housing situations, ensuring that they have adequate health care, investing in good child care than so many other uh, rich, advanced democracies around the country, around the world. Right. And what do we need to understand uh, about so-called welfare dependence, which was often talked about in the 1980s and 90s? Ronald Reagan told stories about this, many of them untrue, as it turned out, about welfare dependence. Bill Clinton, a Democrat, famously signed legislation to end welfare as we know it. What do we need to understand about welfare dependence? It's such a sticky story in America, right? I mean, we hear about it all the time during the pandemic. We heard many of our elected officials say, you know, the reason Americans aren't getting back to work is because we're paying them to stay home. And they fretted and rubbed their hands over unemployment insurance that went up a bit during the pandemic. But it just... It's just not true. You know, if you looked at the states that rolled back extra protections during the pandemic and states that kept the extra aid, they were basically neck and neck when it came to job numbers. You know, it just wasn't true that the extra benefits were causing Americans to stay home. And if you look in the data, you realize really quickly that the bigger problem is welfare avoidance. You know, the fact that so many low-income families are just not connecting to programs that benefit from them. And let me just put a few hard numbers around this. If you look at the number of families who are... Matthew, uh, I'm going to jump in only because we're oh. coming up against a break. So 
when we come back, let's pick up on those numbers around welfare avoidance because that's a big subject that I wanted to get to with you. We're talking to Matthew Desmond this hour about his new book, Poverty by America. He asks, why America, the richest country in the world, has so much poverty? And when we come back, we're going to continue to discuss that, including Matthew Desmond's personal story and connection to poverty and how he says as a country we can end it. Stay with us. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com OnPoint today to get 10% off your first month. This is On Point. I'm Anthony Brooks. Pulitzer Prize-winning sociologist Matthew Desmond is with us. He spent his career researching and studying poverty in America. His new book is called Poverty by America. It asks why in the world's richest country there is so much poverty. And among his unsettling answers, because it benefits so many of us. And Matthew, before the break, you were about to talk about welfare avoidance and so explain what that is and, and its dimensions. It's the fact that so many families that could receive um, Medicaid, that could receive unemployment insurance, food stamps, they don't take advantage of programs designed uh, with them in mind. And if you add up the numbers, you you reach a very startling figure. I mean, one in five workers that could qualify for the earned income tax credit, this kind of wage bump. Uh, they they pass on that. They don't they don't apply for it. One in five elderly Americans who could receive food stamps don't. And if you add all those ways that folks leave money on the table, you learn that every year over $140 billion, billion with a B, in, in aid go, goes unused. This is decidedly not a picture of welfare dependency. It is a picture of, of welfare avoidance. And how do we respond to that? Is that just a case of states getting the word out that the money is there to help people and they just need to be informed about it? What, what's the problem there? What's the disconnect? We used to think families weren't taking advantage of these programs because of stigma. And there is some truth to that. You know, this, And we have made many of these programs um, humiliating and stigmatized. But there's more evidence that families aren't getting connected to them for a much more banal and, frankly, infuriating reason. We've made it hard and confusing to apply. And so little adjustments like connecting people to someone on the phone that walks them to the steps or even literally making the font bigger and clearer uh, really helps what economists call take-up rates. It helps people apply for these programs in much higher uh, rates. Mm. 
Matthew Desmond, I think one of the big challenges here is understanding for a lot of people what poverty actually is in the U.S. And I want to play some tape that uh, we have from a listener. Dave is an on-point listener in Charlottesville, Virginia, and he left us this email about poverty. I challenge the uh, assertion that there are poor people in America. Uh, the very poorest people in America are still in the top 5% worldwide. Dave says that the federal government's war on poverty programs, as he calls them, have only led to more people living below the poverty line. They're complaining about not being able to buy their third television or their, or their third car, and they're, they're, they have more than any other uh, country, uh, average uh, person in uh, any average country in the world. So I'm sick of hearing about the complaining about America having too many people, impoverished people. So, Matthew Desmond, a lot to respond to there. And you basically respond to part of that, Dave's point, in your whole first chapter. So I wanted to ask you about this, this idea of how this understanding of poverty is wrong, why the possession of things like TVs or cell phones doesn't necessarily reflect a person's ability to cover their basic needs today. Because I think this is one of the sort of myths around uh, the idea that people aren't poor because they can, you know, go to Walmart and buy a flat screen TV. For my last book, I lived in a mobile home park in Milwaukee in, uh, in a rooming house in the inner city. I met uh, grandmothers who were living in the Midwest uh, without heat, uh, just sleeping under blankets all winter long and praying the space, space heaters didn't go out. I was with a sheriff eviction squad once when uh, they went to a house to evict um, the tenants and it was just kids living in the home, just kids. Mm. And, you know, what happened is the mother had died and the kids had just gone gone on living until the landlord had had enough. And it was a cold spring day. The landlord changed the locks and the sheriff moved the kids out. They called social services, piled all their stuff on the curb, and we were off to the next eviction. I have seen a hard bottom layer of poverty in this country. And if that listener would like to join me in Milwaukee, I'm happy to show him what I've seen. The Nobel laureate Angus Deaton, the economist, estimated that in America, uh, you need $4 a day to afford the most basic of basic necessities. Mm -hmm. And he estimated that over 5 million of us are getting by on $4 a day or less, that we are absolutely poor by global standards, in his words. And if you want to talk about TVs and cell phones, you know, the cost of those things have gone down a lot over the years. But the cost of the most important things have gone up, like healthcare and housing and gas. And you can't eat a cell phone. You know, you can't trade a flat screen TV in for a living wage or decent health care or dental care. So just because many low-income folks today have access to cheap, mass-produced goods like any other American does, does not mean that they can afford the things that matter the most. Like Michael Harrington put it in his amazing book, The Other America, over 60 years ago, it's easier to be well-clothed in America than it is to be well-housed and well-doctored. Mm. Yeah, I'm really struck by how this whole sort of equation has been flipped on its head over the course of, of a few generations. I mean, it used to be that things like housing, a good education, healthcare, as you suggested, were 
more affordable and things like a color TV was a rare luxury. Now it's the other way around. That's right. And I think it's important. I mean, we have to keep, you know, we have to recognize that we've had a breathtaking march of, of technology, but that is not the same as making serious advanced progress on poverty. And those of us who do not think that we have incredible scarcity in this country, I would just challenge you to, to reach out and be in community with folks in your neighborhood that are under the line. Spend some time with them, listen to them, and then see if, uh, see if you, you still hold that position. Um, you write about the program Temporary Assistance uh, for Needy Families, uh, TANF. The Clint, that's the Clinton program that replaced Aid to Families uh, with Dependent Children, or AFDC. And I learned, I was astonished to learn from your book, that states are not required to pass all the federal money in aid along to the poor. And I'm wondering if we can, you can talk a little about this. How can this be? Uh, I mean, this is such a strange situation. You, and you have some really perplexing and shocking examples. For example, in the state of Mississippi, a 389-page audit released in 2020 found that the money overseen by the Mississippi Department of Human Services and intended for the state's poorest family was used to hire an evangelical worship singer, uh, for example and pay for a Chevrolet Silverado, a Ford F-250 for the head of a local nonprofit, on and on and on. It's just shocking this money doesn't end up in the hands of the folks who need it. How is that possible? It is shocking. It's frankly sinful. Uh, TANF, or this kind of cash welfare program that we have now, it's administered by something called a block grant, which is just a very wonky way of saying states uh, get a pot of money and they have a lot of discretion about how to distribute that money. And most states really find creative ways to make welfare funds do things other than to reach families most in need. So for every dollar in welfare spending in the federal budget, only 22 cents ends up in a family's pocket in, in terms of like dollars in hand, you know? So where does the rest of the money go? So there are states like Mississippi that frankly can, can you know, committed fraud but there are other states like like Maine and Pennsylvania and Arizona that do things like organize marriage courses or um, financial literacy training or pay for Christian summer camps or fund anti-abortion kind of health clinics. All these kind of investments that don't have anything to do, frankly, with reducing poverty. And then states also just literally don't have to spend the money every year. So Tennessee is sitting on over you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in unused welfare funds. And Hawaii is sitting on you know, $380 million in unspent TANA funds. That's enough money to give every poor kid in Hawaii 10,000 bucks. So this isn't just a, a red state issue and a blue state issue. This is something that's affecting states all across the country that have money but aren't investing in the poorest families and their borders. And what's the fix there? I mean, it sounds like this is a, a, a huge problem with this legislation, the TANF legislation. I mean, is it as simply as, I mean, I don't know if this is simple, but it sounds like why wasn't this legislation drawn up so that states would be required to spend this money if they accepted it? It was literally drawn up so that the federal government couldn't have oversight into how states spent the money. Wow. This was intentional. 
And we need to we need to unwind that. We need more transparency and accountability into how states spend uh, cash welfare that's designed to reach the poorest families. And let's just put this in perspective. This means kids that don't have enough to eat, kids that are getting evicted, kids that are homeless, kids that are living with backed up sewage in their bathrooms, aren't getting investments in their, their lives and their families and their opportunities and their futures. This is how poverty robs us of artists and pastors and diplomats and scientists. And it's a cruelty. Mm. We're talking with Matthew Desmond about his book, Poverty by America, and we're talking about how extensive the problem is and how we're all sort of wrapped up in this dysfunction in, in, in many ways and how the, the, the huge amount of poverty in America exists at least in part because it benefits um, so many uh, others who, who are relatively comfortable, and we're going to be talking more about that. Here's some tape from a listener of our program. Jason from Miami left us a message on our Vox Pop app. He says, poverty persists because America is a society of haves and have-nots where billionaires pay less taxes than average working people. You have costs going up, cost of living, especially in Miami. Rent is is 2000 plus, and you don't see anybody's salary or wages going up. So, you know... It, it is it is hard to even try to get your basic needs or have a a savings or a safety net if emergency happens because you know everything goes up except your salary. So there's Jason uh, Matthew. Talk a little bit about that. You write about rents and say over the past twenty years rents have soared while incomes have fallen for most renters. Yet the federal government provides housing assistance to only one in four of the families who qualify for it. So this is a huge challenge. Right. This is a major cause of poverty in the United States. And the rental housing market is utterly brutal. Today, the majority of families who are renters that are living below the poverty line spend at least half of their income on housing costs. And one in four of those families, according to national data, spend over 70% of their income just on rent and utilities. And that's moved us into a country where eviction and homelessness have become incredibly commonplace in the lives of the poor all throughout the country. So he's right. You know, addressing housing exploitation, which is a loaded word, but it just means like the lack of choice. You know, the fact that families who are struggling often only have one choice about where to live. Expanding their choice is one way to really attack poverty at the root. Matthew Desmond, you begin this book with a bit about your own story. You grew up in Winslow, Arizona, in a family that was not wealthy. You experienced eviction because of that. Tell us something about your own experience that really laid the foundation for this lifelong study of yours. Grew up in a railroad town in Arizona. Um, and uh, you're right. You know, my dad was a, my, a preacher of a small church. My mom worked all sorts of jobs and uh, went to college uh, on every scholarship and loan I can muster and worked every you know job I could get. And um, when I was in college, my family lost uh, my childhood home. And I went back and, you know, helped them move and pack up. And, I, you know, I remember that that event is is very traumatic. I remember it as, as embarrassing. Mm. And I think it it worked its way inside of me. And when I when I wrote about families facing eviction, you know, in, in Milwaukee, it was 
how they experienced their own lives too. You know, how they thought their eviction was their fault, you know, that they messed up. And, you know, 3.7 million evictions are filed every year around the country. And I think it's my job as a sociologist to take, you know, a, a problem that feels personal, you know, like losing your home and make it political, which is kind of what C. Wright Mills, the famous mid-century sociologist said is, is kind of the sociological imagination, turning personal problems into structural ones or political ones. And what's it going to take to sort of get to that point where turning these these problems into sort of a into a political movement uh, delivers the kind of effectiveness uh, for uh, in real political change? What's that going to take? Because there's something else in your book that I'm just going to read really quickly because it's striking, um, and that is what Americans really feel about this. And, and this is a, the broader context. You're talking about how polarized we are. But then you say the majority of Americans believe the economy is benefiting the rich and harming the poor. The majority believe the rich aren't paying their fair share in taxes. The majority support a $15 federal minimum wage. Why then aren't our elected officials representing the will of the people? Uh, this we must demand of them. But there's the question. Why aren't our elected officials representing uh, that will? A lot of the reason is because they're captured by by lobbies, by special interests, by big money that have a vested interest in keeping things the way they are. But there is hope here. There is hope. You know, most Americans, both liberals and conservatives, now believe that poverty is the result of unfair circumstances, not a moral failing. And now we have to take another step. We have to take the step of, of considering how our collective moral failing as a nation is often creating and resulting in those unfair circumstances. And, you know, I think that when we talk about Congress and political polarization, it can feel very dispiriting. Right. But, you know, in the 60s, Congress would polarize too. You know, uh, obstructionism wasn't just the, the result, it was the goal. Of, of many folks in both houses. And the labor movement, and especially the civil rights movement, just pushed and kept pushing and put unrelenting pressure on lawmakers. And that's where we got Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. That's where we got the war on poverty and the Great Society, which cut poverty in half in 10 years. So today, my hope is in the movements as well, the new labor movement, the new movement for housing, and the new multiracial movement for economic justice. Well, we're talking with sociologist Matthew Desmond uh, about his new book, Poverty by America. In it, he asks why America, the richest country in the world, has so much poverty. The book doesn't so much address the poor, but the rest of us who might be living in some comfort, urging those with abundance, who are protected, who are comfortable, to become poverty abolitionists. And when, we're gonna, when, when we come back after the break, we're going to talk about solutions and what that really means to become a poverty abolitionist. Say with us, I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. 
I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Anthony Brooks, and we're talking about why there is so much poverty in America, the richest country in the world. We're joined by sociologist Matthew Desmond. He's author of a new book called Poverty by America. And let's hear from another On Point listener now. Lynn is a retired elementary school teacher in Southern California. She told us that she's also been an activist fighting to end hunger and poverty in the United States since the 1980s. In the late 1970s, I actually experienced homelessness for a brief amount of time although I didn't understand the definition of homelessness as I do now. At the time, I didn't realize that was my situation. And, and it seems to me that our Congress mostly only hears from powerful, privileged citizens who want more power and privileges for themselves. And Lynn has a question specifically for Matthew Desmond. What does Mr. Desmond believe is the solution to... Um, the problem of people who are struggling in this country not believing that they have access to those who design the legislation, the tax codes, the programs that are needed to make this country a, a place that works successfully for all of its residents and all of its citizens. So, Matthew Desmond, there's a question for you from one of our listeners. Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, she's right. You know, there's a lot of evidence that shows that the influence that the richest among us have on our political leaders is far outside of uh, what we think a democracy should be like. And many families who have been, frankly, left out in the cold by our political leaders have, have disengaged. And I get it. You know, the poorest families in America deserve better than what either party has delivered for them over the last half century. But we are seeing new kinds of political power rise up among people who are closest to the problem and closest to the solution. We are seeing uh, a new kind of labor power rise up in in Amazon and Starbucks, places no one thought could be organized before. Mm. We're seeing a new kind of, of housing risk distance where Folks are chaining themselves to eviction court, refusing to to let folks be routinely displaced and become homeless. And that that's exciting to me. But I think that for those listeners who are privileged and are and are kind of secure in their money, I think this should be our fight as well. That we should learn how to pitch in and join those movements and support those um those amazing efforts for a better, fairer society. So let's talk about that, because you have a section of this book where you talk about how to be an anti-poverty abolitionist. And and that's aimed at, um, as I've said again and again, those of us who are more comfortable, who don't consider ourselves living in poverty. How how does one become an anti-poverty abolitionist? What do you mean by that? So like other abolitionist movements, the movement to abolish slavery or to abolish mass incarceration, uh, poverty abolitionism views the problem not as, you know, something we have to live with or a, a minor inconvenience, but as an abomination. Uh, it views poverty as, as something that has to go. And like other abolitionist movements, it believes that profiting from someone else's pain diminishes all of us. So a poverty abolitionist takes poverty seriously and takes it personally. 
you know, we try to divest from worker exploitation and our consumer choices and our investment decisions. We push for a, a more balanced welfare state. We want deeper investments in fighting poverty, even if that means we take a little less from the government. And we're we're anti-segregationist. We fight for broad prosperity and inclusive communities. And so that can sound very out there, right? But it also means doing things like showing up at your Tuesday night zoning board meeting and standing up and saying, look, I refuse to deny other children opportunities that my kids get by living in this neighborhood. Let's move forward with affordable housing. Let's not have our values stop where our property line begins. Mm. I want to talk about some other solutions that you touch on. And you make the point that we know, um, we know for certain that some anti-poverty programs work really well. And, and you talk about how early in the pandemic, the federal government raised the child tax credit, sending American families an extra $300 for every child. And that actually caused the child poverty rate to plummet. Now, President Biden wanted to preserve that. Um, uh, his critics called those monthly payments an expensive welfare scheme, and it's no longer with us. Um, so so are some of these solutions fairly straightforward? We know what works. Let's do them. We absolutely know what works. This is not a problem that we have to outsmart. It's a problem we have to out-hate you know, COVID was this clear example of what the government can do for the poorest families among us. You know, we cut child poverty almost in half in six months, six months. But then, of course, you know, with uh, that extra three hundred, with that extra three hundred dollar child tax credit, it was a big part of it. That's yeah. right, and it was a huge part of it, and it went to uh, low income families, but also middle income families. But then we had the pushback, right? This costs too much. This costs too much. How could we afford this? <laughs> I think that's a that's such a sinful question. It's such a dishonest question, as if the answer wasn't staring us straight in the face. We could afford it if the richest among us took less from the government. Let me just give you one quick example. A recent study showed that if the top 1% of Americans just paid the taxes they owed, not pay more taxes, just stopped evading what they owed. We could raise an additional $175 billion a year for the public good. That's more than enough to reestablish the expanded child tax credit. In fact, that's almost enough to pull everyone out of poverty. We have the resources. We know how to do this. This is not hard. The hard part is the political will. It's the political will, but it's also pushing uh, up against a sort of um, narrative that's very well established. And, and I encountered this as a reporter reporting, I remember up in southern New Hampshire, on the effort to find enough restaurant workers during the pandemic. And I heard again and again from restaurant owners, well, these benefits that the government are paying to people, it's, it's, it's better for them to stay home than come back to work at restaurants. So, so address that concern that these programs uh, serve as a disincentive uh, for people to come back to work. A lot of us want to work. You know, work gives us meaning. Work gives us community. Work can be fun. But for many of us, work is drudgery. Yeah. Work is sexual harassment. Work is, I can't, you know, my feet and my knees and my back are aching. One of the most moving stories I read during COVID is how when many 
places shut down and people had to stay home, how a lot of workers are saying, gosh, but, you know, I can finally, I haven't taken a nap in 15 years. I could take a nap, you know, oh my gosh, my, my knees started feeling a little better. I think we have to confront the just sheer brutality of what the job market has become in America and face the fact that it wasn't always like this. You know, we don't have to live with this kind of job market. You know, our grandfathers, they had, they had careers and our, and our, you know, parents, they had jobs and a lot of us, we have tasks, you know, and gigs. And that's the story of the working poor and working class in America. Um, two, uh, the two biggest U.S. anti-poverty programs, the Earned Income Tax Credit and housing vouchers to subsidize rents. Um, these are effective strategies. Um, is this something that you would advocate should be expanded? Um, give us your thinking on that. I think we need short-term and long-term solutions. So things like the Earned Income Tax Credit, which is basically a payment for workers, mainly working parents, who fall below a certain income level. And then there's housing vouchers, which gives uh, renters a ticket to live anywhere they want in the private market and pay 30% of their income on rent instead of 60, 70, 80%. Those two programs absolutely uh, are poverty productions. They're, they're effective. They're lifesavers. But we also need to stretch and reach for something more permanent. Those programs uh, stop the bleeding, but they don't affect the, the cause of the disease. And so what would that be like? Well, in the labor market, we need to also reach for programs that empower workers, things like making unionizing easy, uh, organizing entire sectors of the economy and not just going one warehouse uh, to another. And then the housing market means things like investing deeper in public housing or giving low-income families on-wraps into homeownership, expanding their choice so they don't have to accept a bad option because it's the only option available to them. You know, I I, I want to come back to this challenge and around how difficult it is to change policies that have sort of become part of the American fabric. And I want to return to this idea that we were talking about earlier, the, the mortgage interest deduction, which, as you point out, benefits well-off Americans um, at the expense of the less well-off, if you think of government money as a sort of zero-sum game here. But the problem is, you know, programs like that, the mortgage interest deduction, it's practically a sacred object. And you point out that, for example, in 2015, President Obama proposed ending the tax credits in 529 college savings plans, but he faced immediate pushback from his own party, and the idea died. So I'm just... You know, I'm with the listener who sort of says how, and I know we've addressed this question, but I sort of want to put it on the table again. How do we push back against that kind of political intransigence, really? I think that we have to first assume that anything is possible in a way. Yeah. You know, when I started pushing for um, fair housing laws and really questioning why do we need the mortgage interest deduction, especially for the richest families in the country... You know, a lot of folks in Washington were like, oof, you can't touch that. That's the third rail. You know, you no one's going to reform that. And then you know what happened? Uh, Donald Trump reformed it, you know, with his his tax bill. He actually reduced the mortgage interest deduction just like that. It, things are impossible until they're not. And I also think that for those of us that receive these benefits, I think this is on us to start questioning them and pushing back on them and not just assuming that, you know, um, their entitlements that we should have always and forever. 
So let's just make this really concrete for just a second. You know, for those of us that receive the mortgage interest deduction, a lot of us don't need it. You know, a lot of us are living a level of comfort that's that's incredibly secure. So the next time tax season rolls around, what if instead of saying, boy, poof, I got to pay this much, you know, if, when you're out and talking to your neighbor, what if we said, you know, I get this mortgage deduction and it's it's insane that I get this when children are evicted by the thousands and thousands around the country. You know, I mean, this doesn't make any sense. I'm going to donate the money I get for this this deduction to my local anti-eviction fund. And I'm going to write my congressperson and say, look, I don't want this. Let's let's wind this down. And just imagine if if hundreds of us, then thousands of us, then tens of thousands of us started doing that. I think it would send a clear message to Congress that, look, we want a different kind of society. We want a welfare state that doesn't give the most to people that are secure. We want a welfare state that is really utterly committed to ending poverty in our nation. I'm talking with Matthew Desmond about his new book, Poverty by America. And Matthew, in your book, I, I loved it that you quoted Tolstoy, who made the link between wealth and poverty and class exploitation. And, and tell us about Tolstoy's revelation about all of this that you that you discuss in your book. So... Uh, Leo Tolstoy, after he had written his famous books, moved to Moscow, and he was shocked. He was just shocked by how much poverty there was. And so he he wrote a book exploring this. It's it's a it's a strange book. It's called What Then Must We Do? Hmm. And he he goes around and he says, you know, is this on the poor themselves? Are they not working hard enough? And he takes a hard look at the poor and he realizes, gosh, people like me, these the writer class, the idle class, he calls them. We're working way less than folks that are that are poor, you know. And he he quickly dismisses that, and he pursues other narrative stories about poverty. And he finally just ends in this clear, hard truth. He says, "It's on me, you know. It's on me. It's on people like me." And he has this moving line in the book. It says, "You know, it's like um, it's like I'm on someone's back and making him carrying me, and I feel terrible for him." And I want to do anything I can to help him, except get off his back. And I think that's that's a challenge for many of us yeah. uh, in America who are who are secure and privileged. Yeah, Matthew, if I can, I've got I've got the quote right here, which I got from your book. So I'm going to Thank read. I, I, I'm going to read it because it's 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 quite something from Tolstoy. Here it is: I sit on a man's back, choking him and making him carry me and yet assure myself and others that I am very sorry for him and wish to ease his lot by all possible means, except by getting off his back. If I want to aid the poor, that is, to help the poor not be poor, I ought not to make them poor. Right. Thank you for reading that. It really just hit me when I read it. But what Tolstoy also recognizes, and I think what we should recognize as well, is you know, ending poverty in America will require certain sacrifices from those of us that can afford to sacrifice. But we also gain more than we'll give up. I mean, what I'm calling for is a happier country, a fairer country, a freer country, a safer country. So I think the end of poverty is something that would be utterly life-altering to families that are struggling today. But it also has giant benefits from those of us that are living in fear of like, what's going to happen to my kid? You know, are they going to fall all the way down for those that are feeling icky 
you know, and and nauseated even uh, about participated in this compromised society. The end of poverty is something that all of us would benefit from. All right. Well, there it is. Um, We've been talking this hour to Matthew Desmond. He's author of a new book out this week. It's called Poverty by America. He's also the author of four other books, including Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City, which won the Pulitzer Prize. And Matthew Desmond, it's been such a pleasure talking to you about this important subject. Thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Anthony. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you. And listeners, you can continue this conversation online at On Point Radio. We also have an expert, uh, sorry, an excerpt of Poverty by America on our website, onpointradio.org. Thanks for being with us. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point.